Well, it's time now for our main Bible reading, which is 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you'd like to follow, I'm reading from the ESV. There are church Bibles at the back if you don't have your own. And it says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God, of which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecuting and insolent opponent. But I received mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, do keep that passage open. There's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet, so do make use of that um, as you see fit. And at the end, there will be an opportunity to ask any questions or make any comments on what we're looking at uh, this morning. Uh, But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God 
who is truthful, good, and sovereign over us. And we pray that we would demonstrate that in our response to your word now as we um, meditate on it. Please would be those who would listen uh, to you, uh, to trust and to obey. In that way, vindicate uh, who you are, that you are, you are our God and we are your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, compared to many, of, um, many other of Paul's letters, 1 Timothy has a fairly abrupt beginning with this challenge against false teaching. Now, to modern ears that want to celebrate religious differences, this can all sound very narrow from the beginning. Listen to how one church leader put it. He said, I'd hate to live in a world where everyone held the same beliefs, followed the same religion, thought the same way. How tedious and narrow our understanding of life would be. Note his use of the word narrow. He thinks that for everyone to follow the same religion would be narrow. That is constraining and limiting us to a particular way to think about God. In contrast, to have a variety of religious experiences enriches and broadens our understanding of God. Well, the assumption here is that limits are bad. They're bad because they constrain me and keep me from experiences and understandings that I might otherwise have. Now, the opening chapter of 1 Timothy seems to fit such a view. The challenge against false teachers constrains and limits people. It limits the teacher to what they can teach. And it limits the hearer to what they can hear. It's tedious, it's narrow, it's limiting, says our culture. The assumption being made is that limits are bad. But are limits a bad thing? Let's think for a moment about limits that might not be bad. Supposing when you leave the hotel this morning, and you go to cross the road out the front. As you're about to take your first step, you hear the roar of a maniac Bradford driver race down Cheapside. Now, at this point, you could say, I'm not going to limit myself, and I think, and think that it's not safe to cross. I hear the mani- maniac driver, but I believe it's safe to cross, and I'm crossing the road anyway. We well, tend not to find many people like that or not for very long. In certain circumstances, we are committed to limiting our beliefs based on what we hear and what we see. (coughs) My belief that it's safe to cross the road might be quite wrong. It's in my best interest for my belief to be limited by the fact that there is a maniac driver coming down the road at 70 miles per hour. Beliefs limited to our senses in this way can be a very good thing. But more than that, when you stop and think about it, everybody is operating in a framework that has limits. All frameworks provide limits. And within those frameworks, I'm not free to believe whatever I like. 
For example, suppose that somebody holds the belief that you should be true to yourself. Well, if they are hiding their true desires and living a double life in order to fit in, then, well, if they're consistent in their belief, then they ought to accept who they are and not act like someone they're not. That is to say, the belief that people should be true to themselves limits that person to accept their true desires rather than acting like somebody that they're not. In other words, all frameworks have limits to what can be believed. And so we can't criticise something on the basis that it simply has limits. In particular, it's not, it's not going to be enough to say that it's a bad thing for everyone to follow the same religion simply because it's limiting. Well, Paul begins his letter with a charge to Timothy to charge others. Let's read again from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Timothy is to charge certain people not to teach different doctrines. Now, the presence of such people was tragic, but to be expected. For Paul said as much when he left Ephesus and warned the elders of the church. So picking up on what um, I read earlier in Acts 20, let me read again from Acts 20, 28. This is what Paul said in preparation for his departure. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. What Paul had warned about had happened. And Timothy is to deal with it. Notice that Paul's stance is not to welcome such people as part of the variety of religious teaching and experiences that enriches and broadens the people's understanding of God. Rather, Paul sets limits. There are doctrines that are not to be taught. Most of us would like to know the details of what the false teaching is. But Paul didn't write this letter to us. He's writing to Timothy, and they both already know what the situation is. We're listening in to Paul's instruction to Timothy concerning what to do about false teaching, less about what the false teaching is. Often in the New Testament, False teaching has links with Judaism. With the coming of Christ and entering a new phase of redemptive history, the church had to rethink Judaism. The Gentiles 
weren't being invited to become Jews, but that Jew and Gentile together became a new people under Jesus Christ. And in the rethinking of Judaism came inevitable error. An issue in, uh, in view in 1 Timothy um, seems to be uh, to do with the function of the law, the law of Moses. It was seen that these certain people were teaching the law without understanding the function of the law. Have a look at verse 8. Paul writes, Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. In line with Paul's thought elsewhere, the law functioned to reveal sin. The law is good, but it had to be used for the right purpose. The law had been given to restrain and condemn sin. And here Paul goes on to list the most extreme forms of violation of the Ten Commandments. The law is to show that they're wrong, to bring the lawless under condemnation. But that is not the gospel. Paul, who was condemned by the law, was saved by the gospel, the gospel that was entrusted to him to make known to the nations. In his personal reflections in verses 11 to 17, Paul says in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. As someone who now had faith in Jesus Christ, Paul does not teach that the law, as to be, that the law is to be upheld, upheld as in obeyed as the law. Rather, the law is to be upheld precisely in that to which it points. The condemnation that the law brings prepares for the coming of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings. An unlawful use of a law is to teach it as if it's to be obeyed as the rules of the Christian household. All of this, of course, requires an understanding of how the Bible fits together, an understanding that these certain persons do not possess, verse 7. And so they are to be charged, not to teach. Did you notice what the aim of the charge is in chapter 1, verse 5? Chapter 1, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of the charge is love. The view today that promotes a variety of religious teachings and experiences is not loving. And that's because people are not competent. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. In and of ourselves, we suppress the truth about God. We prefer lies. We're prone to idolatry. Paul doesn't reckon that people are competent. No, left to our own devices, 
He has no confidence that our religious experiences would enrich and broaden our understanding of God. Rather, they just provide further opportunities for us to suppress the truth and show our preference for idolatry. It's fundamentally loving to limit the church to the truth about God. The aim of the charge that the false teachers stopped teaching was love. Paul expands on this aim of love with three characteristics. Do you see them there in verse 5? A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A pure heart, that's one that's been cleansed and transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus. A good conscience. Now, a conscience is a consciousness of what is good and bad and brings with it the obligation to choose the good. But here the idea is not just to obey our conscience, but obey a good one, one that's informed by the word of God. This is love that comes from an uncompromised conscience that will serve and help others. And a sincere faith, not hypocritical or double-minded, but genuine and full of integrity. If Timothy is to fulfill this charge, he will do it in love. And that is what's going on at the end of the chapter with Hymenaeus and Alexander. At Bible College, I remember Mike Ovey suggesting, uh, who's one of the, the lecturers there, suggesting renaming church discipline as church care because that is what it is. In putting Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the church protects those who are left from their error. At the same time, they're put out for the purpose that they would come to their senses and repent. Paul hands them over to help them so they may learn not to blaspheme, verse 20. It's church care. Care for those who are making shipwreck of their lives and care for those who are left. This, excuse me, this stewardship is God's plan of salvation put into effect by the likes of Paul and Timothy. Well, it's at the end of the chapter that Paul entrusts this charge to Timothy. Have a look at chapter uh, 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So the situation is this. At some time before the writing of this letter, Timothy has gone to Ephesus to deal with false teaching in the church. He had wanted eventually to leave Ephesus, but Paul, while on his way to Macedonia, met with Timothy and urged him to stay. And Paul is now writing a follow-up to that conversation. 
But the thing is this. Paul is not simply giving orders here. He's entrusting the gospel to Timothy. Timothy is not simply carrying out orders, but but taking responsibility for the gospel entrusted to him. Just as God entrusted Paul with the gospel, so now Paul entrusts this charge to Timothy. The prophecies that Paul mentions are no doubt those originally identifying Timothy as having the spiritual gifts necessary to do this task, chapter 4, verse 14. And so Paul calls on Timothy to wage the good warfare by challenging and silencing false teachers to guard the gospel and deliver it to others. Now, before we conclude, I wanted to draw your attention to what Paul says in verse 16. Paul wrote, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me is the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Did you notice what it is that's displayed in Paul? The perfect patience of Jesus Christ. We might see God displaying his perfect grace, but Paul sees it as his perfect patience. Paul reminds us of what his life was like before he received mercy. He was, verse 13, a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. God put up with Paul while he held the cloaks when they murdered Stephen. But then here's the thing. The perfect patience of Jesus Christ displayed in Paul comes as an example to who? Verse 16, an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Well, what does this mean? Well, in the first instance, I take it it does come as a great encouragement. It's the argument from the harder to the easier, that if God's mercy can extend to someone as sinful as Paul, surely it can reach anyone. But I wonder if it goes further than that, and it draws our attention to how we think about time and the overarching purpose of God. For God has been patient with humanity since Genesis chapter 3. For centuries, he's been forbearing with the sin of his people and the sin of the nations so that the proper time would come when his son would, bring, would come to bring salvation. God continues to be patient in these last days, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so as Paul entrusts Timothy with the gospel, he is to patiently endure, to preach the gospel in love with great patience and careful instruction, and to stop the teaching of error for the sake of salvation.
Well, as we conclude, what is the application of all of this? Well, maybe I need to go and charge someone not to teach any different doctrine. I need to go and find someone to silence. So I go through my address list on Monday and think who it is that might have deviated from teaching the truth that I can charge to stop. And when I found someone and silenced them, I can then get on with the rest of my week. And if that's the application for me, well, you can relax because you probably don't need to do anything. One of the features of the New Testament letters is that these are occasional letters. That is, there is an occasional situation that has caused a letter to be written. Here the situation is that there are certain persons teaching different doctrines, and Paul is charging Timothy to stop them. There can be a tendency to think that the New Testament letters are letters from God to us. But this is a letter from Paul to Timothy. It is God's word to us, but it comes in this form. Now, there may be times, or there may be a time, when there are certain persons teaching different doctrines at Trinity Church that will need to be stopped. Although I suspect if that were happening, the likelihood that we'd be preaching through one Timothy at a time would be unlikely. We'd probably be in Jeremiah or Genesis or Revelation. The reason we're studying 1 Timothy now is not that our occasion matches the occasion of the letter, but rather it's the next book that we're studying from the Bible. And one of the things that it does is challenge our culture's view of limits. A culture who would hear the challenge against false teaching as tedious, narrow, and limiting. But aren't you glad to be limited? To be limited to the truth? To be constrained to the gospel? To be limited to salvation? To be limited to the truth? that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on how our culture thinks about limits. And we thank you for um, this letter and how it challenges to think. And in particular, that there are good limits, uh, limits that constrain us to the truth of your word and the gospel. We thank you for Paul's care for your church, that although it's tragic, nevertheless prepares your people um, for uh, the possibility of error and therefore clear instruction on that it must be stopped but stopped in love that your church is cared for and is limited to the truth of your uh, uh, gospel and the salvation 
of what it speaks through your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, I mentioned at the beginning there's an opportunity for any questions or comments. Now is your time. So over to you if you have any questions or comments. Yes, thanks. Let me just repeat the question for the recording. So verse 9 says, Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Um, and the question is, if, if the purpose of a law is to bring um, knowledge of sin and condemnation, then is the just sort of an empty category? Is that right? So... The, comment, the commentator um, argues that the just is someone who's been justified through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's talking about the Christian. So basically, and I think that fits with their hypothesis that these teachers were teaching the law of Moses as the rules for the Christian household. Um, so kind of a, a Judaism. And he's saying that's an unlawful use of the law because the law is not to be, we're not teaching. Christians don't uphold the law by obeying the law. They uphold it in, only in the sense that it points forward to and prepares for an understanding of faith in Jesus Christ. So, um, but I mean, you'd be right in terms of the argument of, Romans 3, that the conclusion of Romans 3 is that there is no one righteous. And then that obviously prepares for, a, but now um, there is a righteousness. Um, so, I mean, it, it's a slightly tricky question to answer because, again, because we're listening into a conversation, Paul knows what he's talking about. Timothy knows what Paul's talking about because they've spoken about this before. And the instruction is not so much, um, here is my explanation on the purpose of the law. It's, I'm reminding you, urge you, you need to do this and continue to do this because you've been trusted with the gospel. So it's a, it goes back to the whole question. We'd like to know exactly what's, what's going on, but you can only sort of begin to sort of piece it together. Is that okay? Anybody else? Yeah, okay. Yeah, let me clarify. So the question is, um, I was speaking about how this is an occasional letter of what Paul's instructing to Timothy about, um, that Timothy must charge certain persons not to teach these different doctrines. And therefore... Um, you know, we're not to go and charge, you know, the application isn't we need to go and charge people and find people but then isn't there still a place for calling people out if they're teaching error, that sort of thing. Yes, so what I mean is, is if we lose the idea it's an occasional letter we could be tempted to think that although this is a letter from Paul to Timothy, you could equally just cross out Timothy, write your name, and therefore this is instruction 
to us. And therefore, the command of verse 3 is, you've got to charge certain persons not teaching different doctrine. We're now thinking, like, looking over your back, who is it? Who is it here that's not teaching the right things? And you need to be stopped. Or if there isn't anyone in the church, you need to think, well, who do we basically go and do that? But as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware, there isn't anyone at Trinity teaching uh, doctrines that hadn't ought to be taught. And therefore, by paying attention to the occasion of a letter, helps us to see that the occasion that Paul and Timothy are in doesn't match our occasion um, because we're not... There, there may be a situation where that, it's, it's a lot closer, but it, it's not in that situation. So we don't need to be worried about thinking who, is, who are these persons, uh, are they going to be spoken to because there may not be any. And the reason that we're doing one, Timothy, is not because Tom and I put our heads together and go there are these certain persons and prepare them for what we're going to say to them. We're going to do 1 Timothy. But by saying it's an occasional letter, we still maintain it's God's word to us. It's just that in God's wisdom, he's, uh, this part of his word comes to us in the form of an occasional letter. This is all part of the richness of God's word that we've been thinking about in the different genres. They just, it's not just an instruction manual for us. And actually, we can benefit from it because obviously a lot of the occasions, well, in God's wisdom, all the occasions that are addressed in the different letters will prepare us and help us to, um, to be confident in our salvation and be prepared for every good work. So in in God's design, that's how he prepares us through these occasional letters. And so this is helping us to see how serious truth is, in particular the truth of the gospel and salvation. And so um, and so, if people were, if people are teaching a different gospel to Paul's, then we would want to call it out. So we would want to do that, but if that's not our situation now, the application isn't who are the certain persons. The application is this whole idea of don't we want to be limited to the truth? Aren't you glad that you're limited to the truth of the gospel? Don't listen to the culture that says, oh, if, you, if you, we're narrow and limited and tedious and constrained. Don't listen to them. It's nonsense. Um, actually... If we go on a quest for religious experience and teaching, all we're going to do is fill our heads with idolatry and suppression of the truth, because that's what we're prone to. And actually, it helps us to value the revelation that God's given us, precisely because it's um, uh, the truth. I don't know, does that, I feel a bit waffly, but does that sort of help?